Uh, well, friends, uh, I don't know about you, but something I really dislike is the sound of the alarm in the morning. Uh, who's with me here? Uh, most of us. Uh, sometimes I, I just feel very lazy. Uh, sometimes I feel very unmotivated. Uh, sometimes I just want to stay in bed. But uh, when my alarm is on, it just keeps on buzzing until I'm forced to get up out of bed. But on the other hand, the wake-up call is a good thing, isn't it? For without it, life can pass you by. The the wake-up call just jolts you into action. It shakes you from laziness and lethargy. It gets you up and it gets you moving again. Uh, Now, we've been looking at the second major part of the book of Isaiah for a few weeks now. Uh, If you remember, we saw in chapter 40 that the theme of judgment now gives way to the theme of comfort for God's people who are in exile in the foreign land of Babylon. Uh, We've also seen, as Mark mentioned this morning, that uh, this comfort is going to come through the work of the servant who will bring salvation not only to Israel, but to the ends of the earth. But uh, I want to suggest to you this morning that the chapters that we're looking at uh, at today are really God's wake-up call for his people living in exile. Uh, You may have noticed that the theme of waking up is uh, a a big theme in these chapters. And so uh, if you have your Bibles there with you, uh, flip back to chapter 51, verse 9. Chapter 51, verse 9. And you can see there that the people ask God to awake, awake, and save them. Uh, You can see it again in chapter 51, verse 17, as uh, God tells his people that uh, actually they are the ones who need to wake up or to wake themselves. And you see it again in chapter 52, verse 1, where God again tells his people to awake. Uh, You see, what God is doing in these chapters is he's waking up his people from their spiritual laziness and sluggishness and apathy. Uh, Friends, uh, what kind of spiritual state would you say you are in this morning? Uh, Does your spiritual life, you know, feel like getting out of bed, uh, full of energy, punching the air in the morning? Or does your spiritual life feel a bit lazy and complacent and apathetic? Uh, Perhaps we've just become content, not making much progress in our Christian lives. And friends, we need to listen to God's wake-up call this morning. Now, uh, the first thing that you can see in our passage uh, this morning is God saying to his people, wake up and see that man is small, but God is big. Wake up and see that man is small, but God is big. Uh, On the one hand, man is small. Uh, You can see it there in chapter 51, verse 12. Chapter 51, verse 12. uh, Man is a mere mortal who is destined to die and to be blown away and forgotten, just like a blade of grass. But uh, can you see, by way of contrast, how big God is in this passage? In verse 13, God is described as the creator. Uh, It says there that he is your maker. 
who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. Uh, In verse 14, God is the the sovereign, uh, the one who powerfully rules all things in this world. Uh, You can see there that he stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Uh, Friends, if you ever want a sense of how small people are, uh, just go to a beach on a windy day and feel how powerful the waves are as they come crashing on the rocks. They can break any man in an instant. And God says here that he is the one who commands those waves. But notice, friends, that God is not just brute strength. Rather, he is the one who is also committed to the good of his people. Uh, In verse 16, it says that he has given his people his precious word. He is the one who protects his people with his powerful hands. He is the one who says to his wayward people that he is still committed to their God, and he says, you are my people. But why does God say this? Uh, Why does he say that man is small and God is big in this passage? Well, I think it's because the people of God in exile were fearing man and as a result of their fear of man, they were forgetting God. The fear of man and forgetting God go hand hand in hand in this passage. Uh, You can see in verse 12. Have a look with me at verse 12 of chapter 51. Uh, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor? Uh, I don't know about your family, but um, uh, in my family, uh, everyone is risk-averse. And so uh, whenever we go to theme parks, uh, we never go on roller coasters or other things that can threaten our lives. Um, Rather, we head straight to things like the Hall of Mirrors. Uh, You know, the Hall of Mirrors are those mirrors that distort your actual size. Uh, You stand in front of these mirrors and uh, small people look big and big people look small. Uh, You see... Uh, This was what was causing God's people to be spiritually lazy and sluggish and apathetic in their relationship with God in the exile. Their view about man and God was distorted. Man became big, and so they feared man, while God was small, and so they forgot about him. And friends, uh, I want to ask us this morning... Can this be a reason for us also to become lazy and sluggish and apathetic in our Christian lives? What are the situations where people look big to us and God looks small? For some of us, it could be that our bosses at work look big And the more demands they put on us, the more God seems small. And so we forget about serving him 
and things like meeting together regularly with his people to serve them. Uh, For others, it could be that our unbelieving family and friends seem big, uh, especially when they ridicule our faith, so that over time it's causing you to forget God in your conversations with them. Still for others, we might fear the rise of secular atheism in our country and those who shout down the Christian point of view and slowly we forget about God and speaking about God in our workplaces and in other public spaces. Who are the ones who seem so big and scary to you that you forget about God out of a fear for them? Well, God says here that you and I need to know that man is a mere blade of grass before the one who is eternal and sovereign and the saviour of his people. Uh, Later on, Jesus will say to his disciples, not to fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, he says, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. You see, the worst that man can do is to destroy the body. But God is the one who can destroy both body and soul in eternity in hell. And so wake up, says God, and see who I really am. Now, the second thing that God says in his wake-up call this morning is to wake up and see that the cup of death that the cup has been removed, the cup of judgment. Uh, You can see the command there in verse 17. God says, uh, wake yourself, wake yourself. But what does it mean for the people of God to wake up uh, in the context of the exile? Uh, Well, uh, two things. Firstly, it means to see that the cup has been drunk. But what is this cup? Well, you can see there that it's the royal cup that comes from God's hand. But it's not a cup that is full of the choicest wine. It's not full of, uh, you know, Penfold's Grange or something like that. No, this cup symbolizes, rather, the terrifying and soul-destroying judgment of God on human sin and rebellion. Uh, You can see it there in verse 17. Uh, Verse 17 of chapter 51. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. In other words, the reason why God's people are in exile is because of God's judgment on them for their sin and rebellion. Uh, You can see, verse 19, that they have suffered the devastation of their homes in Jerusalem. They have seen the destruction of the, of the temple. They have experienced the hunger of famine. They have watched with horror as foreign armies have come and put their loved ones to the sword. And all this has been the judgment of God himself. The cup has been drunk. But here's the good news. For secondly, you'll notice there that God says, that the cup has been removed. Uh, You can see it there in verse 22. Uh, God says in verse 22, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, 
you shall, you shall drink no more. You see, here is the wonderful promise of God. The promise is that God will remove his judgment from his people. Uh, now, why would God say this to his people? Why do they need to wake up and see that the cup has been removed? Well, I take it that it's because the people of God in exile were failing to see God's mercy. Uh, they were living as though they were still condemned. They were spiritually lazy and sluggish and apathetic in their lives because in their hearts they did not believe that the cup of judgment had been taken away from them. Uh, my wife is a doctor and uh, she has seen people come in to hospital to remove foreign objects that have become lodged in their body. Uh, one particular person um, apparently came in complaining of pain. And uh, when they took an x-ray, they saw that there was a surgical instrument that was left in the body after an operation. Uh, it was just sitting there and causing pain for a long time before uh, he realised what was going on. And so they had to remove it. Uh, I wonder whether for many Christians, we find it hard to believe that God's judgment has been taken away from us, removed from us. And so this guilt just remains in us like a foreign object that causes pain. Uh, perhaps the guilt comes from a sinful decision you've made or uh, sinful behaviour that has led to uh, hurting others, perhaps. It might be a sinful habit that you just can't seem to quit. It might be a temptation that you can't resist. It might be courage that you couldn't find. It might be any number of things, but deep down there is this sense that you are still condemned by God. But the good news of Isaiah is that the cup of God's judgment has been drunk and that the cup of God's judgment has been removed. Of course, uh, for the people in exile, they had drunk the cup of judgment for themselves and were looking forward to a day when the cup of judgment would be removed. But for us, we know that the cup of God's judgment was drunk by the Lord Jesus Christ who died in our place. Uh, shortly before his execution on the cross, uh, you might remember that Jesus prays at the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, we're told in Luke's Gospel that he was in such distress and anguish of soul about what was to happen that his sweat became like drops of blood. But do you remember what he prays? He prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Take this cup from me. You see, Jesus knew that at the cross, he would drink the awful cup of God's judgment for the sins of the world. And yet, he chooses to do the Father's will and drink the cup down to the dregs so that that same cup of judgment 
would be removed from sinners like you and me. And so, if you and I belong to him, then wake up and see that no judgment remains. Wake up and live not like a condemned person, but one who has now been freed uh, to love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ with all our heart, mind and soul. Well, wake up and see that man is small and God is big. Wake up and see that the cup of judgment has been removed. But the third wake-up call comes in chapter 52, verse 1. Chapter 52, verse 1. What are the people of God uh, who are in exile to wake up to? Well, they are to wake up and see who they really are. Uh, You can see who they are in verse 1, can't you? Uh, They are to put on their beautiful garments. In other words, in God's eyes, his people are as precious as a beautiful bride who puts on her wedding dress on the day of the wedding. Or have a look with me at verse 2. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. In other words, in God's eyes, his people have the dignity of royalty. It is the royal family who sit on thrones, isn't it? And so what God is saying to his people here is that they are valuable and they are precious and they have dignity in his eyes. Uh, Now again, uh, why would God say this to his people? Uh, Well, I think it's because his people in Babylon were thinking of themselves. uh, In verse 1, God alludes to the city of Jerusalem being defiled by foreign armies who were unclean. Uh, In verse 2, Jerusalem is enslaved presumably in the foreign land of Babylon. In verse 3, the people are sold for nothing. In verse 4, God's people have been oppressed, such as Egypt and Assyria. It's interesting that in these verses, the word nothing is repeated. Uh, His people were sold for nothing. They were oppressed for nothing. They were treated as garbage by foreign nations, such that they thought of themselves as nothing as worthless. And yet, God says that one day, a great day of reversal will come. Uh, In verse 3, notice that his people who were worthless and sold for nothing will be redeemed or purchased back without money. In verse 7, you get the image of a messenger on foot running up to Jerusalem to tell them the great news of peace and rescue. He says, your God reigns. Your God has the victory. He has triumphed. It's such fantastic news that in verses 8 to 9, there is joy and singing. And in verse 10, even the nations can see that it is the God of Jerusalem who reigns. Uh, Friends, I wonder whether sometimes we can get lazy and apathetic and make little progress in our Christian lives because we see ourselves as worthless. Is that true? You know, we fall to the same sin again and again and we start to think that God thinks very little of us. 
And so after a while, we simply give up. Uh, we don't even make the effort and we resign ourselves to thinking that this is just the way it's going to be. We become lazy and apathetic. But friends, hear what God says here to his discouraged people. He says, wake up and see who you really are. You are as precious as a beautiful bride to her husband. You are as precious and you have the dignity of royalty. You are precious to God because you have been redeemed without money. I love that phrase, uh, redeemed without money, because it points so clearly to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who redeemed us and purchased us for himself, not with money, but with the priceless blood that he shed on the cross. Friends, do you know that if you and I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, we cannot be any more precious in his eyes? For what greater price could God pay to purchase us back for himself than the blood of his own dear son? And so wake up and see who you really are. You have been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. You have been made his bride You have been clothed with his righteousness. You have been seated to be part of the royal family of the king. Uh, You might remember when uh, Prince Harry was younger, uh, he had uh, the reputation of a wild child. Uh, His life was a life of partying and women and drugs. Uh, He always seemed to be getting into trouble. Uh, He kept the, the tabloid press in business. But at no point was his status as a member of the royal family in doubt, was it? He just needed to wake up and see who he was and start to live like the person that he was. How wonderful is it now to see him living like a prince, serving in the military, using his position to help the vulnerable giving his life to serve others. Now, friends, what God is saying to his spiritually lazy and complacent and apathetic people is to wake up and see who you really are. You are precious in God's eyes. And so see how precious you are and live up to the calling that you have. Uh, Well, friends, uh, we're on the home stretch. Uh, The last thing that you'll see in verse 11 is that uh, God says to his people in exile to wake up and to depart. Uh, Now, you can see uh, in verses 11 to 12 that uh, the sorts of things that God says here sound very much like the Exodus. Uh, You know, this was the time in Israel's history when God miraculously rescues his people from slavery in Egypt to take them to their new home in the promised land. But uh, I wonder whether you noticed that in this passage there are a few things that are very different to what happened in the Exodus. Uh, I wonder whether you can, you can just um, turn to the person sitting next to you and see what, what is different in these passages to what happened in the Exodus. Can you just have a, have a quick chat to the person sitting next to you? 
All right, so what is different in these passages uh, to what happens in the Exodus? Do we have any takers? They're not in a hurry, yeah. So uh, in verse 12, uh, it says, For you shall not go out in haste. Uh, If you remember in the Exodus, they were to leave uh, uh, Egypt in haste. But here, God is saying, don't leave in a hurry, but leave with dignity (laughs) uh, as the holy people of God. Uh, That's what he's saying here. Anything else? Bruce? Yes. Uh, That's actually a similarity in this passage, I think, because uh, notice that in verse 12, that uh, it says the Lord will go before you. Uh, So in the Exodus, uh, God went before them uh, in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He led them out of Israel. Uh, And so here, uh, the manna is different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no mention of, of manna here. Yep. There's one other thing. Uh, I wonder whether you can recall what happened in the Exodus. Any last takers? Uh, Well, I'll tell you. Um, In the Exodus, if you remember, the Israelites were told to plunder the Egyptians. They were told to take the silver and gold and uh, the fine jewels of the Egyptians. But here, notice that they are not to take anything. <laughs> they are not to. Um, they are to touch no unclean thing. Uh, they are not to take anything that might taint them and cause them to commit adultery. The only thing that they are told to take are the vessels of the Lord, which were the holy vessels uh, that was in the temple in Jerusalem, which was taken away from them by. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of uh, Babylon. Um, But the thing here is that God says that he, like in in the Exodus, he is the one who will lead his people out of Babylon and to their home in Jerusalem. And so God says to his people that just like in the Exodus they need to be ready to depart. Uh, I love the Qantas ad on television. Uh, You know the one I'm talking about? Um, It's got the Peter Allen song that says, I've been to cities that never close down, from New York to Rio to old London town. But no matter how far or how wide I roam, I still call... Australia, home. Uh, it's such a powerful ad, isn't it? Because it evokes the, the longing for home that we all have. Uh, it doesn't matter where we are or what we're doing. Sometimes we just want to pack up our bags and go to the comfort of home. Uh, that's the kind of message that God is saying to his people here. Soon, I will take you home. And so get ready to depart. Pack your bags and get ready to leave for home. Uh, Now, friends, uh, this is something that God says to his people in slavery in Babylon. Uh, Their mindset was to be ready to leave Babylon when the day of salvation comes. 
But I want to suggest to you as we finish up this morning that if you and I are people who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, then that is to be our mindset as well. For God has promised that one day the Lord Jesus Christ will return to take us home. It will come like a thief in the night, and so we need to be ready to depart. In fact, the thought of departing on that day is to profoundly affect your life and my life now. Uh, What would it look like for our lives to be impacted by the coming of the Lord Jesus? Well, perhaps it will mean not holding too tightly to the things of this world, knowing that this world is not our home. Uh, Perhaps it will mean investing in our godliness and holiness so that when Jesus Christ does return, he will not find us sleeping so that we will not be ashamed. Perhaps it will mean sharing the gospel with those we love, so that they too will be ready to meet the Lord when he comes. But whatever it is, are you and I living this life in such a way that we are ready to depart? Barry Webb, who has written an excellent commentary on Isaiah, says this. Leaving or departing, was to be the reality that controlled all they said and did. It is the way the people of God are meant to live in every age, including our own. But how little we hear today of the fact that the Lord is going to come to take us home and may do so at any moment. What a difference it would make, he says, if this was our waking thought every morning and our retiring meditation every night. Our expectancy has become dulled, and we are poorer for it. We, too, need to awake. My friends, is your life and my life governed by the coming of the Lord Jesus to take us home? Uh, I wonder whether, for us, we need to awaken to that fact and to live in such a way that we are ready for that awesome and glorious day that is to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you that it pierces us and uh, reveals to us uh, our sins and shows us what we are really like. And we thank you that it guides us to live as your people. Uh, We thank you for your word to us this morning and the wake-up call that it is. And Father, we pray in particular for those of us who may have become spiritually lazy and complacent in our Christian lives, that through uh, your word that you would help us to wake up. Help us to fear you rather than man. Help us to see that all judgment and condemnation has now been removed from us by the blood of the Lord Jesus. Help us to see the incredible price that was paid to purchase us back back to yourself so that we might serve and live for you. And Father, we pray that you would help us to shake off our complacency and wait with longing 
and eager expectation for that wonderful day when your son returns to help us to live this life in such a way that we would not be ashamed on that glorious day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.